The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. So uh, you know that I like to tell stories, and I'd like to start out today's sermon and actually start out this new series with a story about one of the best teachers I ever had in high school. I had two really excellent teachers in high school and a couple who were pretty good, um, and the rest don't make it into the story, Uh, but this is one of the two who was really excellent. And his name was Mr. Reese, um, actually Dr. Reese. He had a PhD, but he didn't, uh, he didn't call himself, he didn't make us call him Dr. Reese. He was a fairly humble guy. Um, and he was known to be really tough on honors English students. He was an English teacher, and uh, I was an honors English student. And uh, Mr. Reese gave me my first non-A since I had started junior high. And it was a C. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Mr. Reese did not mess around, and he liked to tell the honors kids that a C is average, and if you're doing average honors work, that's what you are going to get. Um, of course, none of us liked that. <laughs> On the first day of 10th grade honors English, Mr. Reese handed out a list of grading guidelines that included a number of different types of errors that would result in the loss of a full letter grade if they appeared on any paper or in-class writing. So you can, you can see how quickly the grades would drop uh, if, you, if you messed up these errors. So here's a few of, a few of the things that there, there were uh, on that list of errors. You couldn't have any there, there, there mistakes. Not there, 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 like, oh, it'll be okay, but there, 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 like they are, they're possessive, and they're the place. Right? Couldn't get that wrong. Every time you did it, it was a letter grade drop. Couldn't have any run-on sentences or sentence fragments. You had to have completely perfect, complete sentences um, according to the rules of grammar. Couldn't have any capitalization errors, uh, whether that was sentence beginnings or names or anything like that. And tucked away at the, in that list of, of grade-reducing errors was something that I had never seen before. And uh, I thought of myself as a pretty smart kid. Um, but I'd never seen this before. One of the mistakes that would cost you a letter grade in Mr. Reese's class was called a who that mistake, <laughs> which didn't seem particularly grammatically, <laughs> grammatically appropriate to me, who that. <laughs> um, but that's not what he meant. Um, do you know what a who that mistake is? I had to ask. Um, a who that mistake just means that you have to use who in places that refer to people and that in places that refer to things. Uh, who is a, a personal pronoun, meaning it refers to a person or persons. That is an impersonal pronoun, meaning that it refers to things. 
So I'll uh, give you an example. At my son's t-ball game yesterday, I, would, I might have said, uh, Abel is the kid who is playing first base, right? Kid is a person, so who is the word you'd use. Um, and then I, if somebody didn't know what baseball was and asked where's first base, I might say first base is the base that is closest to us. Base is not a person, so it uses that. Okay, do you understand who that now? Right? So who that? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, so if you learn nothing of theology or faith today, at least you, uh, you learn a nitpicky grammar rule. Um, and today is actually going to be a day where we, we really dig into the words. The words will matter today. Um, and if you know me a little, you know that uh, I'm kind of fascinated by words and, and their meanings and why we choose certain ones and not other ones. Uh, the fact that I'm fascinated by it doesn't mean that I always choose the right one or the uh, nicest one, um, just that I'm interested in it. And because of the fact that I'm interested in words... Uh, Immediately, almost immediately after naming this new series, What is the Church?, I began to wonder um, whether I had named it properly. <laughs> um, I didn't know if that, if that was the way that I should have described it because the word what is, as we know, an impersonal pronoun. And I firmly believe that the church is not an impersonal entity, or at least it shouldn't be. Sometimes it might seem like it is. Uh, but it shouldn't be an impersonal entity. It shouldn't be a thing. It should be a person or persons together. And so I was thinking, maybe I should have named it Who is the Church? But, of course, that, nobody would have known what that meant. Um, so today's sermon is titled Who is the Church? And uh, the reasons why I think that the church should not be considered an impersonal entity, uh, that's the topic that we're going to talk about for the next uh, several minutes here. Um, we're using who instead of what to show that the church is a living, breathing, personal, bodily organization, or maybe I should actually say organism, because it's alive. The church is alive. Right? I was going to do the Frankenstein thing, but I just don't have it in me this morning. <laughs> it's alive, though. So what I'd like to do today is look at a few of the names given to the church in the New Testament. I'm not going to look at all the names um, given to the church in the New Testament, but um, we'll look at the most common ones and the ones that I think are the most significant um, for our theology of what church is and our our practice of what church is. Um, So the first word that I will uh, refer to today is the most common word for church in the Bible. And uh, it's actually a Greek word. I'm not going to get all Greeky on you this morning, but I have to start out this way, and you'll see why in a second. This word is, is ekklesia. Ekklesia is a Greek word that throughout the New Testament is translated church. But that's not necessarily the best translation of that word, because ekklesia simply means in Greek a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, into an assembly. And so the usage of this word throughout um, non-New Testament Greek writing at the same, of the same era never refers to church. It only refers to gatherings or assemblies. And in fact, there's a couple of places in the New Testament where the word is used, and it's clearly not talking about the church. It's talking about a, a you know, maybe a gang that's protesting or, or, or people who are getting together for another reason. And it's the same word, ecclesia. 
but in most of the instances, well over 100 instances in the New Testament, ecclesia is translated church. Uh, and of course, in a Christian sense, it might make sense because um, you know, we, we would say it's an assembly or a gathering of Christians who come together for worship or for religious reasons. Uh, and, you know, you can, if you know some nerdy English words about theology, you may have heard the word ecclesiology. Uh, ecclesiology is the study of the church. It's the theology of the church. And it comes from this Greek word, ecclesia. So now to us, the word, even that Greek word, does essentially mean church. But initially, that's not what it meant. So it has nothing to do with a building, which is what we usually mean when we say the word church, don't we? Um, How many of you got up this morning and said, I'm going to go to church, and you meant you're going to come to this little yellow building on South Clinton Ave, right? That's a very common usage of the word church. I sort of wish that the translators, um, and it's really in all major English translations, I, I wish that they had maybe been a little, little bit more literal um, and left it as gathering or assembly, but they didn't. Um, but now, now you know, when you see the word church in the New Testament, it simply means the people who are gathered together. It's simply the people who bothered to get off their butts and leave their homes and go someplace to meet. And that's actually pretty significant if you think about it. Um, so we, we also, we, we talk about, have you ever heard me use the phrase capital C, church, church with a capital C? Um, what I mean by that is the, chur- the church globally at large. Now, when you try to expand it beyond these walls and say that we're all part of the church, it makes a little bit more sense. It's a little bit more true to the original usage of this word um, because the, the, uh, the Christians in uh, South Dakota are part of the church, capital C. Uh, and the people who go to the Roman Catholic Church down the road are part of the church, capital C. And the Christians in um, Uganda, where we have some connections, are part of the church, capital C. They're part of the ecclesia, part of the gathering, part of the people who come together and assemble to worship God together. Here's another interesting thing I thought, uh, or I found, and if you're not a, a word nerd person, you might be bored by this, but there's another Greek word that also means gathering. Just like in English, you have more than one word that can mean sort of the same thing. The, the other Greek word that I found that means gathering is this. The word is synago. Anybody hear another word in that? Synagogue, exactly. Actually, the synago is the uh, verb form, I think, synagogo <laughs> is the, um, <laughs> uh, is the uh, noun form. And so there's actually precedent, not only in the language, but in the roots of the church, which grew out of Judaism, to use a word that originally just meant gathering to refer to the place where people gather for religious purposes. So there's some precedent there. I think, you know, the reason maybe I mention that is that sometimes, you know, I've read a couple articles this week where people said, well, the word church isn't in the Bible, guys. It's just gathering. So all you have to do is gather. We don't need the church. Well, that's a stretch to make that claim based on the linguistics. You might have to make that claim for other reasons, but um, you can't just say because the New Testament doesn't have a word for church the way we have a word for physical structure that physical structures aren't important. 
So. so the first word is ecclesia. The second word that's used a bunch of times in the Bible um, is the believers. Now, the word believers is used a lot in the Bible, but the, with the word the in front of it, the believers, it used about 25 times, almost all of these usages are in the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament. The first four are Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. And the fifth book is the book of Acts, and that tells the story of the early church and how the church formed. And it's in that book that you find this term, the believers, um, used over and over again. So, for example, in the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts, which was preached by the apostle Peter, we read that Peter stood up among the believers, which at the time was a crowd of about 120 people, and he began to speak to them. You can read that in Acts 1.15. So he stood up among the believers. At that point, you were a believer or you were not. And so that was enough. To, you know, the believers in what really was a pretty obvious question. You didn't really have to answer that. Uh, and a couple chapters later, it's even more specific and explicit. The church is described this way. In Acts 4.32, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And it goes on to say how they shared their possessions and gave to people who were in need and those things. But very early on, the group of Christians who had begun to gather together were described and defined and named simply by the fact that they had a shared belief. And what was that shared belief? It was nothing less than that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, had been crucified, had been raised from the dead, and was the source of their faith, the source of all that they were doing. And if you're going to believe something that amazing, um, you, get your, you get your own group. <laughs> you're going to need some friends, uh, especially in the Roman era, pre-Constantine, when believing something like that was likely to get you executed. But their faith is what defined them. They were the believers, plain and simple. Here's a third word that is used in the New Testament of the church. This is a fun one. It's the saints. This is used uh, about 65 times. You all know that song, When the Saints Go Marching In. Um, you're all familiar with the use of the term saint uh, within some other traditions, you know, Anglicanism, Catholicism, and uh, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodoxy, they use the word saint uh, to describe specific people as a title, to describe specific people who are heroes of the faith or heroines of the faith. So uh, St. Gregory or St. Teresa, um, St. John, St. Peter, all those things. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with uh, of churches that use the term saint, and we use it sometimes when we describe some of those old dead people, um, but we don't have necessarily the same perspective on, on uh, who they are and, and how we ought to regard them, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm not angry at people who have a slightly different perspective on those things, but I do want to make a distinction between that concept of saint as a special a hero or heroine of the, faint, uh, of the faith and um, how it's used in the New Testament, which is really not that way at all. The word saint is simply a noun form of the word holy, right? So saint, a saint is just one of the holy ones. 
Uh, so congratulations, you are all one of the holy ones. <laughs> um, you might, you're, you're holier than uh, other people, maybe. See, that's, that's the way we think of the word holy today, as in someone with perfect uh, behavior, maybe. Uh, and it's almost, it's usually, maybe even majority of the time, used um, negatively. Oh, that person is so holy. Or he's so holier than thou. We like to say that, right? It's fun to pick on people who think that they're better than us. Uh, makes us feel better than them. But really the word holy doesn't, it doesn't quite mean that either. It simply means separate. Set apart. Maybe special. All those things are built into the word holy. So to refer to the members of the early church as the saints was a way of calling them the holy ones, which simply means the ones who are separate. And as I mentioned a minute ago, you kind of had to be separate if you were going to believe the things that the church was believing and that it continues to believe. And actually, this would be a separate sermon, but it would be nice if we could get back to that understanding of the word holiness, that we are set apart for a purpose, that we are separated for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in our words and in our lives and our actions and to all those around us in a variety of different ways. We are not pursuing holiness for the sake of having ever better behavior. As much as that might be nice because then we could flaunt that, we are pursuing holiness so that we are truly set apart and honored and special to be used by God. That's what it means when we call the church the saints. Here's a fourth word. Um, The word is brothers. Now, in our translation uh, that we favor, the New Revised Standard Version, we add, or not we, but the translators added the words and sisters after brothers. In the Greek, it's really only just brothers, adelphoi. You um, You can see that in the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, Adelphoi, brothers. Uh, And just using the word brothers would have been appropriate in first century Middle Eastern culture where a gathering of men and women together uh, would still be addressed as brothers. But our cultural understanding is that women are fully included as the recipients of God's word. And uh, that's not just a cultural understanding. It's also an understanding that we have drawn out from the rest of the Bible. Uh, And so we... I personally tend to agree with the translators of the New Revised Standard Version and uh, some other translations that are uh, more recent that uh, indicate this to help people who maybe don't understand that cultural difference, um, to help people know that when, when uh, somebody is, a group of people is addressed as brothers in the New Testament, it really does mean the whole church, which would include the sisters as well. So truly Christian theology of gender based on the Bible, I think, would agree with that that cultural adjustment. And so here's how this, this phrase is used uh, a bunch of times in the New Testament. It's usually in the letters that Paul is, or somebody else is writing to the church saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, help me out. I anxiously await the day that I can be with you again, brothers and sisters. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, for example, or, or this other matter that you wrote me about, brothers and sisters, here's what I have to say. Um, 
So it's interesting, in addition to having a shared belief, and in addition to being set apart or separate, the church also considered itself a spiritual family. They weren't just friends or colleagues working together or people who were in the same social club. They were brothers and sisters. That's pretty powerful. And uh, in some segments of the church, um, you might think particularly the African-American church, it's appropriate to address each other using brother or sister. And uh, everybody has a title. And so you would call me Pastor Scott. Um, I don't ask you to call me Pastor Scott. Some of you do, and that's okay, but I don't, I, we're not really a titling type of group. Um, and it would seem kind of weird to us probably if we went around calling each other brother, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Um, but it might be fun to try sometime to just, just think about what that causes your brain to do. <laughs> I mean, I don't refer to my own sister as Sister Beth, so it, it, it's a little weird, I guess. Um, but if you think about the distinction that that indicates, you know, churches often are just a social club, just a bunch of friends who get together because they have a common interest. And I think our value of community suggests and, and, and actually sort of commands us, since it is our found, in our founding documents, it's our, our foundation, commands us to have a stronger, in many ways more difficult view of what it means to be in relationship to each other. We're not just pals. We are family in a way, brothers and sisters. And our membership covenant talks about the relationships in that way as going from being a friend of the family to being a family member. And so that doesn't mean we have to spend holidays together. It doesn't mean we have to argue about politics together. It doesn't mean we have, doesn't mean we have to get angry at each other um, in the way that you really only can get angry with your family. Um, but it does mean that we, take, we ought to take care of each other more than we would a, maybe a coworker or a friend or a neighbor or a a friend, you know, a club member. If we're going to be brothers and sisters to each other, that that requires a level of commitment that is maybe a little bit challenging to some of us. It's powerful, and that's that's how the church is used or described. It's about ninety times in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. Usually spoken by an apostle, like the most important person in the church. Uh, you know, other than Jesus himself, calling the congregation his brothers and sisters. Pretty powerful thing. And here's the last one for this morning, which I think is maybe the most powerful one. The fifth way the church is described um, is as the body of Christ. Now, if you did a, uh, looked in a concordance or did a search um, in one of the online Bible tools for the word body in the New Testament, it would come up tons of times, not always you, this way. Um, as it turns out, the New Testament is rather preoccupied with the actual literal physical body of Jesus. In the Gospels particularly, there is much written about Jesus' body and how it was handed over and what was done to his body. But beyond those usages, there are several really poignant 
passages in the letters of Paul uh, that refer to the church, all of us, as the body of Christ, which if you th- it's just an incredible metaphor. We, it, those of us who grew up in the church say the body or the body of Christ all the time. We never probably even think about what that means. So let me list for you a few, a few passage references. You can write them down and look at them later if you'd like. We don't have time to read all of them. I'll tell you what they say generally, but it would be good for you to read these as well, especially considering we're going to be going forward in this series for the next, I think, six or seven weeks, um, talking about what the church is. Uh, Romans 12, 4 through 8, Paul talks about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31, a long discourse about the body of Christ. Um, the book of Ephesians, in probably seven or eight different places, but you really have to kind of read the whole book to get the thing, to get the picture. Fortunately, it's a fairly short little number. And then uh, Colossians chapter 1 has a really beautiful, powerful, theological statement about who Jesus is. And tucked in there is that he's the head of the body. And that's one of the two main ways that this body of Christ image is addressed in the New Testament. Um, the, the most significant way is that uh, Paul is fond of saying that we are one body with many parts. Or our translation that we tend to use says members, which, again, I'm not so sure I like that translation. Um, because it implies membership in an organization, which even though we think that's important, it's not really what's going on there. It's, it's members meaning like body parts. And you can probably, if you use your imagination, think of ways in English that we use the word member to describe body parts. But um, that's what it means. One body with many members means one body with many different parts. Eyes, ears, nose, shoulders, knees, toes. <laughs> That was an accident, I promise. <laughs> I can't keep going. I don't know. What else rhymes with nose and toes? <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. So one body with many parts, and, and the, the lesson there is that, hey, Mr. I, you can't think you're more important than, you know, Mrs. Kneecap. The body needs all of those parts. They're all equal parts. And if any member of the body, any part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. And anybody who's had any sort of chronic pain understands how that is true. If you have back pain, suddenly it's in your hips and then it's in your shoulders and it just grows. If any part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. So that's the first way that it's, it's used. And the second way is what I mentioned before. And this is the very important theological statement that we make up all the different parts of the body, but Christ is the head. And obviously, the head has some significance. Um, and, the, you know, the metaphors mix and things like that, you know, because Paul also talks about people as being the eye or the whatever, but, and the eyes in the head. Um, <clears throat> so it, it breaks down at some point. But if the body doesn't have its head... One of you doctors, can you tell me how long it would be around? <laughs> Still li- living? Not long, right? <laughs> you don't have to be a doctor to know that. Christ 
is the head of the body, the church. Now, again, using that Greek, it would the passage, the verse would say, Christ is the head of the body, the gathering, or the assembly. And um, we, we often talk about, when we're talking about our mission statement at church, and we'll talk about the specifics of Artisan Church in the last week of this series, but our mission statement is to encounter God, embrace people, and engage culture in the way of Jesus. And that last clause of our mission statement is because Jesus is the head. We could encounter God and embrace people and engage culture all the live long day, and if we don't ever involve Jesus in that, then we're not really a Christian church. We're just a bunch of, you know, well-meaning people who, you know, you might make a little difference here or there, but we believe some pretty significant things about why Jesus is the key, why he is the head of our body. And so we do all those things that we are called to do in the way of Jesus, with him as our head. So these, these five different phrases I've used, ecclesia or gathering, the believers, the saints, brothers and sisters, and the body of Christ, what is it that they all have in common, these different names for the church? Well, the first thing that I see that they have in common is that they all refer to things that are alive. I said at the beginning, the church is alive. And hopefully our church is alive. It's not an inanimate structure. It's not a floor plan. It's not four walls and a ceiling. It's not even an organization, a team. It's, it's alive. And uh, my question this morning for all of us, maybe especially for myself, is how well are we living out these names here at Artisan Church? How well are we doing? How, how well are we doing at this? At being the gathering, the assembly? Well, we're doing okay at that, I guess. What, where is our faith as a as a group? Do we all share this belief? Um, is that really what defines us, if it is true that we do share the belief? Are we actually saintly? <laughs> Are we actually set apart and specialized for God's usage? Do we, do we have relationships with each other that are more significant than friendship or club membership, but actually are family relationships, brotherhood, sisterhood? And, of course, most importantly, are we walking with Christ as the head of our body? Um, and so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes as we finish up here in uh, relative silence to answer those questions as best you can and to think about that and maybe do a little listening prayer to hear from God on what he might be saying to you about that. I'm going to do the same thing. And uh, then what I'd like to do is uh, agree that we will talk about this some more as we go through this series. I'll do my best to address these issues in coming sermons. And uh, I would love to hear from you what your thoughts are on these names and how well we are doing it at living up to them. Take a couple of minutes to 
Think and pray about that. Thank you, God, for speaking to us in the silence of those moments. And we pray for your uh, voice to be continually in our ears over the next several weeks as we talk about and think about and uh, ask about what the church is and what it isn't. Um, Lord, would you please give us your wisdom and your direction about who it is we are called to be. And... uh, Lord Jesus, we want to now as a, as a body submit to you as our head, uh, as the source of all our thought and belief and faith and practice. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, during uh, this church series, it, it's almost... Uh, even more important that we take communion together. Um, we talk about communion in a few different ways here. You've, if you've been here a bunch of times, you've heard me say um, that it's an act of remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, that it's, the, it's, a, it's a food for your souls, to use a John Wesleyan term. Uh, and I also always say that it's an act of community together that unifies you as one body, not only you together in this room, but also with all the Christians in that capital C church in the city and in the world. And so perhaps today as you approach the table, if you choose to partake of communion, and if you choose not to, that's okay too. You can sort of sit and think or pray. Um, but if you're following Jesus, it's appropriate for you to be part of this. Um, maybe today when you're, when you're doing that, you can imagine another Christian somewhere else in in the city of Rochester today or um, in a different state or in a different country, doing more or less the same thing with bread and wine. And as you look to the left or the right and see the person who's taking communion with you, you can think about how the two of you are knit together in one body and how you are both knit together with that other person you're imagining in one body, the body of Christ. And it's, of course, Christ's body that is represented in that bread and his blood, which is represented in the cup. Uh, and so our table will be open uh, for the rest of our service. We have a few more songs to sing together, and so there's n- no need to line up and rush if you don't want to. You can sit and think for a while or sing a little bit and then take communion. Um, but I would invite you to come and participate in this sacrament um, or respond otherwise uh, according to God's leading in your life.
This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.